The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 23 through the end of the chapter. And if you don't um, have your own Bible, you're free to take one of the Pew Bibles with you as a gift from Park Church. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find today's scripture on page 776. Okay, Matthew 21, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect you, my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. 
And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amanda. Good morning. Hope you're well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. I'm looking forward to getting into this passage with you all. Uh, A couple things before we do. One, uh, it's just always a gift when we have child dedications to see these little kids up here. And I I hope you feel as a church, uh, even in the sort of formality and the celebration of that, just the power uh, that we have to be a part of what God's doing to form these little kids. I think about this as a dad. The, the gift that my kids have to be around you all is an incomparable, indescribable gift to me as a father, that my kids get to grow up around other people that are following Jesus with different personalities and experiences and stories and, and passions and interests and callings. Uh, it was an incredible gift. And so uh, I know it meant a lot to me to be in a community uh, as a person growing up in a not a Christian home, uh, to be around a lot of other people that are following Jesus. Uh, for these kids, even in these Christian homes, to be around and other people uh, is an incredible gift. And so thanks for participating in that. Uh, we're going to this morning do something a little bit different. We got a lot to work through in this passage. There's a lot. Uh, we are in the middle of our one year long Holy Week. Um, so uh, this Holy Week that we're in right now, uh, the narrative in Matthew's account and, and also in Mark and Luke and John's account just slows down a little bit. In fact, over a third of all of these gospel accounts focuses on this one week of Jesus's life. If you think about all the attention or the lack of attention given to his childhood and his uh, experience growing up, the amount of kind of time and experiences covered over the three years of his life uh, in a few, in a number of chapters, the amount of attention given to this one week is stunning. So we're going to slow down as the gospel accounts slow down and pay attention. Uh, We also, when we have parents coming in for like child dedications and whatnot, we just like to preach about God's judgment. Um, And so, (laughs) so that's what we get to do today again, uh, and a lot over the next several months. So buckle up. Uh, Welcome to Park Church in Matthew chapter 21. Um, In this passage, we're going to look at God's heart for us as a people, not just to know things about him, but actually walk attentive to his presence and to follow faithfully his way of life. And when communities fail to follow his way of life, uh, there are indictments in God's word about that. That when you've lost the heart of not just what it means to like know certain things about God, but to actually be a kind of people that represent his love in the world, there are indictments. And we have a chance this morning to actually talk about the passage specifically and bring it to bear in kind of our normal everyday life. But we also have a chance to bring it to bear on a specific application and opportunity we have as a church to step into some, uh, some ways of partnering with the work of God through an organization called World Vision. Uh, some of you know about World Vision. Uh, we got to partner with them in the spring through the marathon um, that many of you ran and others supported uh, financially working and running for clean water around the world. World Vision is a Christian humanitarian organization that does incredible work to help churches and Christians around the world, different organizations, support and partner with what God's doing in different developing countries to bring things like clean water, nutrition, safety, hygiene, child protection, in particular to help children in these developing communities uh, around the world. And we get to talk 
talk about that over the next few weeks. So I'll talk about it a little bit at the end of the sermon here today. Uh, surely and certainly there are broader applications, but we're going to bring it to bear specifically into an opportunity we have there. And then we'll spend a lot more time talking about it next week in particular, an opportunity we have to partner with some things that God is doing in Uganda. And so uh, prepare for that. I want you to be kind of have a heads up for where some of this is going today. And we'll have more time to delve into it throughout the week and then next Sunday in particular. And so I'm anticipating God working in all of us to open our eyes to some of the needs in the world and how he might call us as his people to be his hands and feet and expressions of his love in, in real, tangible, practical ways into that space. Uh, but we need the Holy Spirit to work among us. And so let's calm our hearts right now and pray that God will work in power. Jesus, we need you. We don't want to just go through this morning kind of doing the things we do um, without giving attention to our desperate need for your power at work within us. We don't want to just talk about the Bible. We don't want to just kind of talk about Jesus. We need your spirit to awaken us to the beauty of who Christ is, our cornerstone, our king, our savior, our redeemer. And then we need your spirit to help us not only see his love for us, but to transform us to be the kind of people that would, in all of our broken and limited ways, in all of our stumbling and failing and doubting and, and kind of fumbling through life, that you would still remarkably, through these clay vessels, through these kind of like broken, limited humans that we are, that you would manifest your love in the world. We want to be a people that hold fast to your word, that hold fast to your, your presence, and hold fast to our purpose in this world, to be a light to the nations. And so, Spirit, would you work in power among us today? Work in power among us to awaken us uh, to who you are, what you've done for us, and how you want to work through us in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It is no um, secret that the church in the West is in a state of decline. It's just real. Uh, it's a fact. And you can look at all this data in it. If you're looking at it through the lens of churches, what's happening in churches, uh, it's something that's been a pattern for the past couple decades, even longer. Uh, there are studies that have come out in 2019, 2020, looking at the past two decades of kind of life in the local church. And every year, every year, way more churches are closing their doors than new churches being started. Uh, every year, the average and the median church attendance is dropping. And when COVID hit uh, two years ago, that accelerated a lot of kind of uh, rumblings that were already present. In fact, in 2019, uh, there's a study that was done looking at 32 uh, of the most well-known denominations, Christian denominations in the U.S. And of those 32 denominations, stats from their own kind of data, there were 4,500 churches that closed their doors and 3,000 churches that, that started. And the average kind of church attendance over the past two decades, average has gone down about half uh, in most uh, churches in these denominations. And it's, a, it's an interesting pattern to watch. And so um, for some people, they see this as this like harbinger of like the church is losing its relevance and the church is like falling to the wayside and losing its kind of like presence in the world. And before long, Christianity will be largely obsolete. And, uh, and that's an interesting observation, and it's an observation that, uh, to me, or at least an interpretation of the observations, that feels kind of inattentive to history. Because there are patterns like this throughout history. 
Uh, there are times throughout history, not just times, but it's the recurring pattern that through, throughout history, there are incredible works of God working through people that are coming before God with humility, desperation, dependence, a need for God to be Savior, a need for Jesus to be King, a need to experience his redemption and forgiveness and transformation and hope that come. And God has worked powerful revivals and movements of his spirit throughout people groups around the world throughout all of history. And when you see churches grow as these vital, kind of like um, vibrant, um, kind of communities that love God, love his word, are following his wisdom for life, love the gospel, and are living that out. As you see that movement happen, maybe through a generation or a region, what tends to happen over time is that generation that kind of rose up with this new passion for Jesus, a passion for the gospel, a passion for God's mission in the world. In time, they build institutions to support that, and, and you build churches, and you create traditions and practices and habits to support what God's doing, and that's all good. And what happens often is that next generation kind of comes up within that, that it's maybe less personal for them. That next generation is handed kind of a shell of institutions and traditions and practices and habits, often failing to personally grab a hold of the full vitality and that need for God's actual work in their own life. And you see over a course of generations, this vibrant, passionate movement of God that fades in time into a more cold, either kind of... Uh, kind of heady, intellectual, kind of like hanging on to certain beliefs, but devoid of the presence of God's spirit and his love. Or you see churches letting go of God's word and God's wisdom and kind of drifting into compromise with the culture of this world, just diluting the message of the gospel. And in those times, the church fades. Uh, there's a guy named Mark Sayers who wrote a book called Reappearing Church that kind of talks about the three core elements of what he calls the vital or vibrant church. One of them is truth. The other is presence, and the third is purpose. The truth is the truth of God's word and the centrality of the gospel. That vibrant churches have to hold fast to the truth of God's word and the centrality of the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. Vital churches also have to hold on to the presence of God's spirit, that God's spirit to be dependent on him, that we don't just want to know things about God, but we have to depend on the power of God's spirit to awaken us to the beauty of God, to transform our hearts, to be those that reflect his love in the world, to follow his leadership, to listen to his voice, to turn from things when he brings conviction, to actually follow the power of the spirit, to pray and beg God to move in power in our own life, in our families, in our, among our roommates, uh, among our schools and our vocations and, our, and around our church in the city, that we need the, the presence of God and his power. And third, the purposes of God. That vital churches have to hang on to God's purpose for the church in the midst of the world. That we're not just called to be this kind of uh, holy huddle that kind of takes all of God's goodness and grace and he loves us and he's for us and, he, and we're his family and we kind of like huddle back in a little corner and just stay safe and kind of avoid the kind of dirty gross world out there and keep ourselves unstained before the world and, and kind of over kind of pendulum swing to this idea of isolation from the purpose God's given us to be in the world, loving the world, reflecting his righteousness, his justice, his kindness, his love, his generosity, his humility, his character all over the world. And when churches lose their purpose in the world to be salt and light in the world, you lose that vitality. And in Sayer's book, he, he quotes a guy named James Barnes who talks about this kind of movement of churches experiencing this revival and growth that might last a generation or two as like the movements of a tide. 
That, that the tides over centuries, over generations, the church has these moments of vitality and growth and movement. And the tide swells in and God is transforming people and communities and churches and through churches impacting cities and cultures. And in time, things tend to fade and you see the kind of influx of culture and you see the movement of the church as it gets marginalized, pushed to the edges and it's pruned and there's times of pain and challenge and difficulty as people have lost sight of God's centrality. And in those spaces, normally a group of people say, we don't want to be the church without God's power among us and we start praying and begging God to move and begging God to revive us again and to fill our hearts with his love and rekindle our souls with his fire, with the presence of his spirit and, and the tide moves back. And that happens over generations. Generations. So to be in this space right now in culture where we are and say, what does it mean to be faithful to God without kind of looking at the data of what's happening in the churches and what's happening with a sense of fear to say, God is faithful. What does it mean for us to lean in? Say, we want to be a church that's paying attention to your word, holding fast to your gospel, that's dependent on your spirit, but also that's holding fast to our purpose in the world. Has always been the call of the people of God, including the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And you can read as you follow the, the story of God's people throughout the Old Testament, the same sort of title movements with these moments of passion for God, this kind of turning from idols, trusting God, putting his word back at the center of who they are, worshiping in the temple, pursuing righteousness, trusting in God's presence, depending on his power. And then you see movements over generations where the church compromises, walk away from the word, walk away from God's presence, start compromising with other cultures. And into that space, that kind of tidal movement, God would send these prophets. These prophets would come and warn the people when they were falling away, saying, you're falling away from my presence. You're falling away from my word. You're falling away from my purpose for you to be salt and light to the nations. And as time went on, the people of Israel had lost, so severely lost the heart of what it truly meant to be the people of God, that God would send prophet after prophet after prophet, and they would reject prophet after prophet after prophet, to the point where God was sending prophets saying, the time has passed, judgment is coming, you have so severely failed to be who I called you to be, that you are no longer even able to be called my people. You're now called not my people, because you're not bearing the fruit of what my people are called to bear. And that's the situation in the first century where Jesus is doing his ministry. He's come into a culture and a space that has so severely lost the heart of what it truly meant to be the people of God that they no longer resembled that in any stretch of the imagination. And so God sent a final prophet, a guy named John the Baptist, to come in to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And still the religious leaders rejected him, though many of the most broken in their society some of the most marginalized, ostracized, the poor, the sick, the hurting, the sinners like tax collectors who had compromised with Rome, prostitutes, and others who had turned from God's law in different ways were hearing John calling people to turn from their sin and to prepare their hearts for the coming king. And many of the most broken were doing that. They were being baptized in a river to kind of say, the way I was going is not the way of God's kingdom, and I want to submit myself to God's reign and rule and prepare my heart for his coming. And so they had turned, but the religious elite had rejected him. And so Jesus does his ministry in the first century in a culture where the religious establishment, including the leaders of, of the temple of God, 
had lost the heart of everything. And Jesus is confronting that head on, especially here in Holy Week. He's made his way into Jerusalem. He's made his way into the temple. And the people around are saying, he's the king. They're crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. They know he's the king. They want him to be the king. They're ready for him. That same crowd that's pumped about him being king is going to go from calling him Hosanna to within a few days crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And the religious leaders in this space feel Jesus as a threat to their authority, their prestige, their honor. And so Jesus comes into the temple and is pressing on this tension. He flips over money tables, driving out those who had established all of these hindrances to people coming before God to experience his love and his presence and his power. He casts over the temple or the tables in the temple. He, he drives out the money changers and those that are selling all of these animals. And he welcomes people into God's presence. And that... That, that disrupted the status quo, to say the least. And so where we're at in Matthew is the religious leaders kind of coming up to Jesus and saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come in and to disrupt this like this? Look with me, Matthew chapter 21. We'll start in verse 23. And when he entered the temple, this is day two, maybe day three. There's some debate of Holy Week the week after Jesus comes into Jerusalem where he will be crucified this coming Friday. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and they said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Essentially, who do you think you are? We are running a system here. We've got a way of doing things and you come in and you start flipping over tables as if you have authority. Who gave you that authority? Now they're not genuinely curious. They're trying to catch him. They've been trying to catch him for a long time. Here's the problem. Here's the tension that Jesus is, is navigating all throughout the Gospels. If Jesus says, I'm the king you've been waiting for, what Rome will say is, oh, ha, interesting. We have a king, and it's not you. We call that treason, and now we're going to condemn you to death. If Jesus publicly calls himself king, he will be condemned to death by Rome. And so the Jewish leaders who've been trying to catch Jesus and trip him up this whole time, they already hate him. They hate what he's doing as he's changing and disrupting the status quo in their society, a status quo that they are at the top of, the hierarchy, the kind of socio-religious hierarchy. He's disrupting that. He's elevating the least of these. He's taking the last and calling them first. He's calling the first last. He's flipping the kingdom upside down and they're done with it. And so they're trying to catch him up. And so they ask him this question because if he says, declines or says he's not the king, then all the people that think he's the king are going to be disappointed and maybe this movement will fizzle out. If he says he is the king, they can go to Rome and say, hey, we've got this insurrectionist rising up among our midst. Can you deal with that? And Rome would say, happy to oblige. And this is what will happen in a few days. It's what will happen in a few days. And so they asked Jesus this question, trying to trip him up here and now. And Jesus does a very Jesus-y thing, uh, which is not answer their question. Um, and instead, turn the tables back on them. Uh, verse 24, it says this. Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John... From where did it come? From heaven or from man? Sharp, sharp, sharp man Jesus was. Uh, because a few things. One, uh, by not playing their game, he doesn't step into their trap. And instead, he just flips the trap right back on them. Because in that moment, they have a, they have a decision to make. Are they going to say that John was truly a prophet of God, which all of the people of Israel around them that are pumped about Jesus being the Messiah believed John was a prophet? They believed John was a prophet. 
And if they say John's not a prophet, then all the people will be like, what do you mean John's not a prophet? We've been following him. We're excited about this. God's moving among us. Like, and they would begin to doubt and distrust the religious establishment. If they say that John was a prophet, that puts them in a pickle because what John was doing was preparing the way for the coming king. And when Jesus came on the scene, John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John believed Jesus to be the Messiah. And so if they say John is a prophet, then they're acknowledging Jesus as king. If they say John's not a prophet, they've got a kind of frustrated crowd to deal with. And so they're stuck in a hard spot. And so they say this in the passage. They discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, Well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they, hold, they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Which I love. Jesus just doesn't play the game that we play. We want Jesus to fit in our little box and fit in our little system. And we want to like put him on the hot seat and kind of hold him to account. And he's just not interested in being held accountable by us. He's the king. He's the king. What he's more interested in doing is subverting our own confidences, our own securities, and helping us understand how desperately we need him. And that's what he does in this passage. He finds a side door into their heart. They won't play that game. They won't answer this question. So he asks a different question to kind of find a side door. Have you ever been asked a question by somebody uh, who you're like, thought it was a benign question? You answer it and you're like, oh, there was more. There was more to that question than what I thought. There's one time, this is hard to say out loud publicly. Um, but there was one, one time about a, 10 years ago where a friend of mine asked me, he said, hey, Gary, can you juggle? And I'm like, yeah, I can juggle. And he goes, yeah, you look like a kind of guy who could juggle. I was like, what the heck does that mean? Like, that's not what I'm going for. Like, I'm not trying to look like the kind of guy who could juggle. Uh, and it's like low-key bothered me for 10 years. I mean, like, like, found this, like, little side thing. That little question is just like, what do I look like? This deep insecurity. Like, I'm like, I don't, man, I, that does not what I'm shooting for. I'm already a pastor. That's weird enough. Um, but a guy who could juggle, man, um, found a, si a, si a side door entry to disrupt me and undermine my confidence. Uh, Jesus is good at that kind of stuff. Jesus is good at like, you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm listening, cool story, and he asks you a question, and you're like, oh, I know the answer to that, which is what they're going to do. They're like, I know that answer, I know that answer. He's like, <laughs> that's you. It's you, and like, oh, you know, and like they kind of are recoiling a little bit by the end of this conversation. That's what he's going to do. And so he tells a couple stories, a couple parables with some questions that are going to undermine this people. And also for us, if we have ears to hear, have a way of undermining our own sense when you read these stories, it's, it's very clear who the good guys and the bad guys in these stories are. And you can be like, what an what a idiot, and how could they do that, and how violent were they? And when you begin to understand that this is sort of the way we approach Jesus, the king, and the way we approach God, it becomes really humbling. You come to this space where you desperately need God to show us a kind of mercy and grace that, that, that would bring forgiveness and transformation to broken people like me. Look with me at what Jesus says in this first parable. He says, what do you think? A man has two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? 
Jesus is talking about this this father who has a vineyard. And throughout the Old Testament, you can read about this all over in the prophets. One of the passages most relevant to this is Isaiah 5, but where Jesus talks about the people of Israel as like a vineyard. God is a a vineyard owner and he plants a vineyard in this world with Israel being this, this fruit that's supposed to grow up. And these people are supposed to work in this vineyard and bear the fruit of being God's people, the fruit of God's presence, the fruit of his power, the fruit of his love is supposed to bear out and over overflow out of their country, out of their community to bring blessing to the world. And so God says, or Jesus says in the passage, imagine a father who who has two sons and he calls the sons to be faithful in this space. And one of them says, no way, never, and explicitly rejects the reign of the father and goes the other way. And then later, maybe when a person like John the Baptist comes and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, later turns Again, Bible word is repent and change their mind, change their approach. Say, I've rejected you. I've rejected your reign. I was running away from what you said, but I'm I'm turning and I'm not going to follow your authority in my life. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. Where the other that begins with this sense of like, I'm all in. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be faithful. We're going to be your people. We're going to be faithful to do what you've called us to do. And then they don't. It's interesting, a theme throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, we call it the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, after God gives the law to the people of Israel in Exodus 20 and in the subsequent chapters, a recurring phrase that the people say is, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's this little motif, this little theme that makes its way through the Pentateuch is, we're in, we got this. You've called us to be faithful and show justice and righteousness and love and generosity and care for the marginalized and care for the oppressed and an equitable society. You've called us to, to, to care for the sojourners and the ostracized and to be a community that's showing the light of your love, not just to our own community, but also to the outsiders. You've called us to be light to the nations. We're in, we're gonna do it. Yes, yes, we will obey. We will work your vineyard with faithfulness. And then turns out they didn't. They didn't. They turned away. And so Jesus asked the question, which one did the will of the Father? And, and they say the obvious answer, the first. And Jesus said to them, right, this is the kind of subversive, you know, poke at the gut here. He says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, those who are, who are seen as the most low, the most broken, the most sinful, the most unclean in their society. He names the two most hated groups of Israelites. And he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. You religious elite that are like, we, we've got the temple and we're following the rules and we know Torah and we've memorized our scripture and we do the rituals and we show up, but you have no love for people. You create these institutions and you create these practices that push broken people away. And instead of showing my love for the poor, my love for the uh, oppressed, my care for them, instead of showing justice and kindness and righteousness and generosity, you constructed a system to lift yourself up and keep other people out. And John came and called you to account and all of these people that have been pushed out came in and you still rejected him. You still rejected him. That for all of your doctrine, for all of your religious activity, for all of your confession that we're the people of God, you lost the heart of the whole thing. 
The way that the New Testament will say things like this, like uh, James in his letter will say, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now, what James isn't saying is that, like, the way to earn God's love is to do a bunch of kind of heartless, mindless duty and religious activity. What he's saying is true, genuine faith always manifests itself, always manifests itself in fruitfulness that's marked by a love for God and a love for others. The way James specifically brings it to bear is care for the orphans and the widows, the most vulnerable, the most broken. If you say you know God and you you say you walk with him and you don't care for the orphans and the widows and their oppression, you you don't know God. Listen to what James says in the letter. This is James chapter 2. It says this, chapter verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself if it does not have works, it's dead. It's dead. The people of Israel were like, we've got the temple, we've got the promises of God, we've got Torah, we've got all these things, we've got righteousness and activities, but they had no genuine love for God and love for people. And the way Jesus will talk about them is they were like whitewashed tombs. Like, look nice on the outside, dead on the inside. Dead on the inside. And a core conviction for us as a church and for all of Christian history is that human beings are not reconciled to God by the works we do. We don't get kind of like this, I've got some brokenness and maybe if I like outweigh it by good works, God will look at my life and put it on the balance and say like, well, you're better than the average person, so you're in. You get to know me, saved. That's not what Christian theology has ever taught. It's not what Jesus taught. It's not what the apostles taught. It's not what the whole thrust of scripture teaches. That we are declared righteous before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we get welcomed into a relationship with God purely on the basis of what Jesus did in his righteous life, living the life we could never live, his sacrificial death, laying down his life for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins, bearing the judgment that we deserve, and his resurrection to give us new life and the power of his spirit to transform us. And when you have experienced that justification, that reconciliation with God, it will manifest itself in a transformed life. Not a perfect life. Not a perfect life. Prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. Oh, I feel it. My heart is fickle. I doubt and I wonder every day. But little by little, people of God that truly trust in him are transformed by him and bear the fruit of his presence among us. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit or the evidence, the outward evidence that God is living within us. The fruit of the Spirit is things like love, like sacrificial Self-forgetful love, joy, even in chaos, peace that makes no sense, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. And the way that the Old Testament and the New Testament talks about it is that it would manifest in a community that's ready to meet the needs of the vulnerable, to pay attention to the hurting, to step alongside, to be agents of reconciliation and justice and hope and love, to care for the poor, to care for anybody in our community that has needs and outside of our community when there are broken areas that we can step into to manifest God's love. We do that. Why? To earn God's favor? To earn God's forgiveness? No way. 
Never. But because of his love and because his spirit is alive within us, that's the manifestation, that's the evidence of his spirit. So here's how John, the apostle, the beloved apostle, writes about it in his letters to churches towards the end of his life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. That means perfected is this image of coming to its full maturity, its full flourishing, its full vitality. The love of God comes within a person that knows him and erupts out of you in a way that manifests the love of God in a beautiful way. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 3.10 says this, By this it's evident, it's clear, who are the children of God. If you want to know who the children of God are, it's not the people, I said a prayer when I was five, therefore I'm a child of God. Hey, that prayer when you're five might have been that entry point for you. Praise God, celebrate that, love that. But if you have a life of fruitlessness, don't look back and think like the Israelites, like we've got the temple, we're the Lord's, when you have no evidence of being the Lord's or following him in your life. You're like, this guy's getting kind of intense. I'm like, I think this is a gross error in the past 50 years of American evangelicalism. To think that you can say, I go to church, I said a prayer, I call myself a Christian, therefore I am. The Bible, Jesus, James, Peter, John, all of them. Author of Hebrews, the whole New Testament's going to say, just read it. And it's going to say things that are going to make you a little uneasy with that conviction. How do you know you're a child of God? You look like him. Not perfectly, but you're growing to be the kind of person that's following his way. Following his way. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brothers and sisters. The the, the force of the New Testament is clear. That to be declared righteous before God, to be reconciled to God, is a gift of God by grace, not, not about our works. It's received through faith in Christ, not anything we've done. Nobody could boast and say, look at all the great things I've done. That's why God loves me. But the next verses that talk about that in Ephesians 2 talk about being his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared before, beforehand, that we should walk in them. That there's a thrust to our life. And when we fail to show it and claim that we know God, we've missed the point of it all together. And so God sends, sends prophets and ultimately his son into the world to redeem it. Look at what happens in the passage. It says, so what do you think? Next parable. This is um, verse 33. So here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. We're back into the vineyard. And he put a fence around it and he dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for the fruit drew near, so this is again, the Lord owns the world, everything in it. The whole earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness thereof. It's all his. And he calls us in it to bear fruit and to be stewards of the space and to bring flourishing by the way we operate in the world with respect to one another and the world around us. And, and when God brings us accountability, what do we do? When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants, which are a word used for the prophets throughout the Old Testament, to the tenants to get his fruit, saying, show me what you've produced in this world. Show me what you've cultivated out of this space. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. 
Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, Surely they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Again, they're like, I know the answer to that one. Easy. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. This is clearly kind of an indictment of Israel rejecting prophet after prophet after prophet. And what they're about to do is to reject the Son of God himself. But it's also a little microcosm of what we all do. The reality is none of us want a king. None of us want a king. We want to build our life on things that we think will satisfy us and give us meaning and joy and all the things we long for on our own terms. And so we think about Jesus coming into this space, into our life, and we think, like, does he fit with my agenda for my career? Does he fit his authority, his love, his ways, his wisdom? Does he fit with my agenda for my family or my agenda for my sexuality or my agenda for my money or my agenda for how I'm going to operate with, in, in recreation and relationships? Does he fit with the way I think about conflict? Does he fit, does his way and his wisdom fit with, I think, the way I think about justice in the world? Does his way and his wisdom think about the way I think about my day-in, day-out life? And we often say, I don't know if Jesus... Jesus totally fits. I can have a little bit of Jesus, but if he comes in as king, as Lord, I don't know. None of us want a king. None of us. There's something in our heart that is just disinclined, this proclivity to turn away from him, to push him out, just like the Israelites. And we reject him as king, just like all human beings have throughout all of history. We push the king out. We push him to the margins. We push, push him to the edges, even where we want him nearby. We don't want him at the center. We don't want him on the throne because we want to be on the throne. We push him out and we reject him, which would be a full stop tragedy. Be a full stop tragedy if it weren't through our rejection of him that he was accomplishing the very means by which we could be forgiven, atoned for, cleansed, accepted, and transformed. And that's what Jesus says next in this passage. Look at what he says. He says, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In the kind of cultural moment that they were in, they had this huge temple with these mega stones. I mean, the stones that were used for the temple construction, constructed by Herod, uh, some, you know, a couple generations before this generation here. These are huge stones, some 16 feet long, massive. And the, and the builders of the temple would assess these stones from a quarry a few miles away, and they say, that stone has some cracks in it, that stone's the wrong color, that stone's not going to fit right. Kind of with what we're trying to build, what stones will work, what stones won't. And they had the job to assess these stones. And what Jesus says, he quotes Psalm 118, which is talking about God's work even in and through Israel. And he says, you are rejecting me. You're saying, I don't fit in what you're trying to build. And this is what we do. We say, I don't know if he fits with what I'm trying to build, with who I'm trying to be, with what I feel called to do. And the stone that the builders say, you don't fit with the life I'm trying to build, the agenda I have for my life, for my, my, my purpose, my family, my job, my career, my life, my sexuality, my money, whatever it is, I don't know if you fit at the center, at the cornerstone. And that stone that we push out says God has made the cornerstone. It is through our rejection of him that Jesus isn't just like dying as a victim. He's laying his life down 
for the very people that are crying out to crucify him. In fact, when the people who are crying Hosanna change their tune to crucify him and Jesus is hanging on a cross, he doesn't say, I thought you thought I was king. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Instead of calling down God's judgment from heaven on them, he takes God's judgment on himself. And he bears the wrath of God that we deserve for our rebellion, our rejection, our pushing him to the side. Instead of paying us for it, he takes that penalty on his own shoulders to forgive us, to cleanse us, to atone for our sin, and to welcome us into the life-transforming experience of life with God. And in that space, he raises again on the third day to give us the power that for whoever would put him at the center and say, I confess that Jesus is Lord. I believe that God raised him from the dead. You experience a salvation that brings transformation in your life to build your life around his love, to become the kind of person that reflects his love, to look at your neighbors, to look at the hurting, to look at the city, to look at the world, to look at your family, to look at those who have wronged you, to look at your coworkers, your kids, your neighbors, Say, God, how do I reflect the love that you have so freely, so powerfully shown me? This is who we're called to be. This is what God's doing, and it's stunning. But it means you've got to put him at the center. This could apply to every area of your life in powerful and meaningful ways. The way you think about your work, the way you think about your family, your money, your job, your life, your mornings and your evenings, your parenting, your school. It applies to all these spaces. Jesus, we need you now. Uh, we want to step into practical ways uh, to reflect your glory in the world. And we pray that you protect us from feeling any sense of self-righteousness, but you'd give us a hunger to follow you. You told us as we make disciples to teach, teach one another to obey all that you've commanded us. So would you grow within us the heart of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the kinds of activities and the kinds of works that Jesus did, that we'd follow your way of life. But would you do that from a place of awe and wonder that we are called children of God by grace through faith in Christ alone. So we give you thanks, Jesus, for your incredible love for us. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.